The views that I express on this podcast are mine, and the same for our co-host Juan Pablo. Well, they're his. Listening to Panoptic, relating theories of communication, power, and technology to practical institutional issues and everyday life. Welcome to the podcast. It's bright and early Saturday morning, and we're going to attempt to talk about Socrates and strategic communication. So, apologies if our communication isn't so great this morning. Well, I've got my cup of coffee, so, you know. I'll either be, I'll either be, uh, if my brain isn't sharp now, in about 10 minutes, I'll probably be, won't be able to focus on anything. (laughs) All right. So much caffeine. So we'll see how it goes. We'll do our best. All right. So in the vein of communication, um, no, years ago, I I talk about my, uh, my, um, passion for communication all the time. And um, that's existed for several years. And yeah, you're a communication guru. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see. But you know, in spite of my interest in communication when I was a bit younger, um, I, I still recall memories in which I'm like, "Ugh, I can't believe I thought saying so and so was a good idea or would create a positive outcome." <laughs> and you know, I, I'm pretty sure my communication <laughs> skills have improved. Uh, or at least my capability to be strategic with my communication has improved, as in what am I trying to accomplish with this communication and how am I going to achieve that outcome? So, Can, can I ask you a question, yeah, Jason? Yeah. Would, how would you feel about telling us that story about your, uh, I think it was a date you were on or maybe you were with a friend and you were talking about Camus? Yeah, we were. Um, how would you feel? You don't have to tell it if you don't feel like I, it, but... I'll, I'll just give the bullet points. I, I, this is just an example of not being uh, aware of your situation, which can lead to you know a bad communicate, uh, communicative outcomes. And I was reading uh, for the second or third time Albert Camus' The Myth of Sisyphus, one of my favorite books. And he has a very um, anti-suicide stance in that book. And I was dealing with someone who was a little bit kind of... Um, sensitive to those things and i thought it would be great to randomly bring up the topic of why we shouldn't kill ourselves in a meaningless universe and you can imagine why that kind of position might seem inflammatory very, so i, I didn't a bro- very light topic very light topic for a, you know everyday discussion yeah and you know that's kind of my character sometimes i'm a little bit um, <laughs> not aware and i just want to talk about something that is interesting to me without understanding that the people I'm with might not be interested in that topic or, or they might be offended by that topic. So by suicide in a, in a meaningless universe, long, yeah, long story short, I didn't persuade anyone that day. <laughs> yes. It's a, there's more details, but it's a funny story. But yeah, that, that's a but good reason why we should be yeah. strategic with our communication. We should think yeah. about what we're going to say before we say it. Because then we can have better outcomes for ourselves and for other people. 
we're going to go a little bit more in depth into that today. And, you know, as with all good Western things, strategic communication can be traced back to ancient Greece. And to this day, I think many academics view Socrates is this dialectical approach, the Socratic method, as the gold standard approach to discovering truth, largely due to its open forum, democratic, and supposed neutrality from rhetoric. And m many also don't. They see it as pure ideology. But, you know, yeah. we can get to that on another episode. Well, Thrasymachus probably would see it that way. We're going to, okay. And we'll, yeah, we're, we're getting to that. Thrasymachus, yeah. as he, pre he sort of, helps us preview or maybe he he's ahead of his time and sort of a underline we'll talk to him but we'll talk about him but he undermines this idea that through that dialogue is sort of open and communication is uh is is clean let's say yeah well well so let, let's dig into that uh, i'm not beholden to this but my feeling is that one probably can't be fully open transparent and democratic all of those things at once when using communication strategically. So it's often said that the Socratic method is anti-rhetoric. It's, you know, an honest process of uncovering truth through open forum dialectics. But Socrates' um, line of questioning in Plato's Republic, uh, it's highly leading at times, suggesting that he knows exactly where he wants the conversation to end. So that suggests to me that Socrates had a clear goal in mind. He wanted to win the battle for justice, this conversation was about what is justice. And uh, he had a strategy to accomplish this outcome before entering the conversation. Anyway, so this doesn't mean that he was engaged in sophistry or highly misleading rhetoric. That's something that Socrates is famously very against. But I'm going to argue later that strategic communication is not in inherently rhet uh, rhetorical. Instead, rhetoric is only a possible component of it. And uh, I do think Socrates was being strategic. So this leads us to our topic today, uh, which is the first of a two or three part series, depending on how this turns out, focusing on strategic communication. So today we're going to discuss a, a famous discourse between Socrates and Thrasymachus in a Republic, it's, um, Plato's Republic, where Plato has just kind of written a, um, or a transcribed conversations between Socrates and Polemarchus and Thrasymachus and other um thinkers and, and philosophers from ancient Greece. And um, this is also something that uh, you and I, Juan, kind of bonded over several years ago when we first met. So it's a, yeah. a good topic for us to, to cover together. Right. And and it's a, it's a foundational philosophical text, right? So, so for talking about communication, um, it's a foundational text that we had to touch upon, I think, and as we get started, but it's one that we chose, I think, to read back in the day because it's it's really you know, a lot of people have said Plato is you know philosophy is just footnotes to Plato, and I think today when we talk about this whole tension that you're bringing up, or this whole question of whether uh, Plato Socrates is uh, whether he's a rhetorician in disguise or something of that of that ilk. Or whether he's really an open, you know, he's he's communicating openly and in a sort of non-strategic way. This brings up a lot of questions and tensions, not only in the philosophy of Plato, uh, but also in the whole idea of open sort of dialectic. Right? We'll get to that. Yeah. So 
we're going to talk through the Socratic method. We're going to look at Socrates and Thrasymachus, their competing notions of truth, and how they might influence persuasive and interpersonal outcomes. Uh, we're going to provide a temporary working definition of strategic communication, uh, and we're going to examine the merits and limitations of the Socratic method from a modern strategic communication perspective. And then uh, we're going to kind of lay the groundwork for a deeper discussion in the next episode where Habermas um, is going to provide a refined definition and critique of strategic communication, and we'll do a deep dive into, into some of my favorite strategic communication frameworks from the negotiation yeah. literature. And I'm hoping to even give um, our listeners to go deep enough that they can actually start operationalizing those things in their lives if they want to, or they can do some more research um, if that's something that is interesting to them. But we'll also um, critique those things and, and try to understand right. what they're actually doing in in um, an institutional framework. Right. And maybe there will be two questions, one question structuring today's episode and one question structuring next episode. And to me, the, the question for us, this main episode is, uh, can we operationalize Socrates for the Socratic method today? And the next question I think for next episode is, what are the limits to me, right? From my perspective, I think we've, we've argued about this a lot, but what is what are the limits of strategic communication uh, in modern life? Right. Probably uh, many limits, I'm guessing one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think so, but we'll, we'll leave that for next episode. I'm excited to have that uh, conversation because I think we, we approach that question from very different perspectives. Yep. So, all right, let's start with the Socratic method. So how does the Socratic method work? So um, in a way, I mean, this episode may be, or this um, uh, series of episodes may itself be a good example of the Socratic method because we're going to be probing what we really mean by communicating strategically, arriving at a more refined definition at the end if we're successful. Yeah, or, or communicating Socratically. Or yeah, correct. So, so what is it? You start with the presupposition, like, my pet Izzy is furry. And then you cross-examine that presupposition with a question or series of questions, such as, okay, is Izzy a bear? Of course, bears are furry, so maybe Izzy is a bear. But alas, <laughs> this is such a, a stupid example, Izzy is not a bear. <laughs> Izzy, I've met Izzy, she's yeah. not a bear. <laughs> Izzy isn't a bear. And she's... But she's a cute cat. Yeah. Okay. But what do we mean? So, okay. So by working through this process, we, we arrive at a refined definition of Izzy that is closer to the truth. As in, like you said, Juan, my pet Izzy is furry and she is a cat. So mm -hmm. of course though, Juan, someone could retort, well, what makes you so sure that Izzy is a cat and not a bear there? You know, so, we could get into a conversation about the anatomical differences of cats and bears and what, constitutes a cat's catness versus a bear's bareness and then we'd have to <laughs> right. go down this this track of getting uh, more and more detailed in our analysis to really get to the essence of what we're talking about here yeah i would i would call this the you know zeno's paradox in terms of predicates of of this is a classic philosophical problem in terms of how do you define the essence of 
what you know a human being a cat a bear uh jason you know whatever right and so the question of essence is a is a fundamental f- metaphysical question which uh around which philosophers have written books and books and books and uh it's a it's a problematic question if you bring up the notion of you know well how do you define something based on predicates on sort of adjectives descriptions and when do you stop those descriptions to actually get at the kernel of the thing and is the kernel some kind of like ideal essence is it some kind of material essence you know if we keep chipping away chipping away at sort of the the stone block of descriptions of what is he is do we get to some kind of essence of what is he is as a cat or as a being and so we're facing a in terms of just from a modern philosophical perspective we're facing a sort of problem which is we know izzy is a member of what we call a species cat that has evolved over time and so from that perspective the post darwinian perspective this philosophical search for essence has become very unstable which and i think this is going to some this is something that's going to be a subtext for my take on on plato uh my take on the socratic method is uh, on this difficulty of grounding some sort of absolute static truth dialectically uh or in terms of dialogue but let's keep let's keep chip, let's keep looking at things from from those perspectives as we move forward yeah and yeah, i think it is a very socratic um, you know, it's appropriate for this to be the Socratic method because at the end of the method, you, from a, a Socratic perspective, you come to true essence, which is something that is tangible but not quite accessible. That's kind of the opposite of what Thrasymachus is going to say. Yeah. And, and you know, classical or scholars or uh, people who, who specialize in, in classic philosophy might want, you know, might be cringing when i say these things and but my assumption is that plato in some ways is overlaying his ideas over socrates clearly but we also don't know what socrates his philosophical intentions were we just know he was this guy who would sit around the agora and question everybody's presuppositions or propositions and always ask them to to be more specific in their definitions and then, and you know he did this to the extent where he, he kind of drove the authorities in, in Athens crazy and they, and, and they kill them, right? So Socratic method has a dangerous, it leads you to dangerous places. Uh, but Plato, we'll see, has to react to, you know, Plato does something maybe a little different than what Socrates might have been doing, where he has to, he has to find an end to this questioning somehow. So we'll, we'll talk about how he does that and the tensions that brings up to the Socratic method. Right. All right, so I, you know, being me, I tried to think of some consulting examples of this method in action. You know, do we use the Socratic method in a consulting context? And I I realized that we use it quite a bit, actually. So I often find myself in a situation where a client has problematic beliefs and attitudes that are contributing to a problem that is hurting the organization. Uh, For instance, this is made up, but a realistic example. You know, if if I'm... uh, the client, I might say, the agency's retention problem isn't that our culture is toxic, it's that our employees have become soft. So there's, <laughs> I'll just I'll 
give a little addendum there. So, so there's this kind of therapy and counseling uh, called cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, where a therapist uses a kind of Socratic method to probe the client's thoughts, feelings, and behaviors to hopefully enable the client to become more mindful of his destructive patterns. My girlfriend, she's a, a PhD candidate in counseling and smarter than me. She can tell you all about this. Um, but I, I, I need to have her on as a guest. Yeah. These days. Interestingly, uh, though, I'd say in the, so in the consulting world, uh, we do something similar to CBT when dealing with clients who hold such problematic beliefs. So I might say to this client from before, well, most respected client who pays the bills, what do you mean by soft? <laughs> what are the specific attributes of a soft employee? And the client they may... Want Keurig machines in the break room. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe they do. Maybe that's why they're for free being insubordinate. Coffee. We were just talking about the importance of coffee for the the control society. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the client. Okay, what? so the, the the client might say though, well, they aren't loyal, they aren't respectful, and they don't want to work hard. And you know, when I was young, prof uh, a young professional. Uh, loyalty, respect, and hard work, these were all considered virtues. Okay, so then I'm going to probe further. Well, most respected client, I agree these attributes are virtuous. What is your organization doing to incentivize these behaviors? Anyway, so we're going to go down this track, and hopefully I'd get him to realize on his own that he may be able to get more from his employees by modifying his beliefs and attitudes and trying something new. And this is very much in line with the type of work that I do in organizational change management. Uh, the vast majority of the, of the battle is getting leaders to buy into your recommendations by convincing them that they will see major investment return on the back end of whichever changes we're trying to implement. Um, the thing is, though, you need to do this carefully and sometimes in in such a way that the client is going to think that they had these great ideas themselves. So there's a kind of inception happening here through the Socratic method. Yeah. Well, you know, and I, I think this this brings up the question of how Socratic is any method that, at the end of the day, is working strategically, right? This is a big question for for us. What does, is the Socratic question uh, when the employee, when you ask, what is what does it mean to be a soft employee? And they respond, well, it means these things. Uh, when I was young, and then what if, you know, what if the next question is, well, I've, I've watched uh, Mad Men. That's not true. You guys just sat around and drank liquor all day. Uh, is that the Socratic question, the next Socratic question, <laughs> or is it, or is it, well, most respected client, you know, let me, let me get you to change your perspective and try to strategically get you to well, sort of like, that's a good point. So adding something like, well, most respected client, something like that, a rhetorical appeal or, um, you know, just trying to be respectful is a kind of strategy. And it's not something that is necessitated by the Socratic method, but the Socratic method as kind of like probing and looking for contradictions constantly, that kind of approach, you can imagine how that could go completely wrong if not executed in the right way. <laughs> if you're just like yeah. kind of brutally revealing all of the contradictions in your partner's reasoning, that's not going kind to elicit like a, a good reaction yeah. from that person. Kind of like Socrates in the Agora. And executed, I think, is a, yeah. a very apt term yeah. for discussing what could happen to you <laughs> if you keep going down the line of the Socratic method, especially in a boardroom, right? Yeah. So, so what does it mean to be soft? Were you really not soft? 
and then you know so you mean to be an alcoholic is not is to be not soft and so forth and so forth well there i mean there, there's this question that we're going to dig into more like strategy being strategic with your communication can mean there's something kind of not transparent not democratic happening behind the scenes but also can lead to much more favorable outcomes for everyone. So I think part of the, the argument we want to have is, can you still be ethical and strategic? Yeah, well, let me, let me sort of interject for a minute and, and talk, I think, about this from all jokes aside, right? Socrates, you're talking about the, the, the Socratic method and how it might not be the way to go, right? With a, in, the, in a consulting situation, for example. And... And, uh, Let me just say, yes, like it, it worked in that respect, but it had to be captured in in a strategic framework. It couldn't just be the Socratic method. There needs to be other things like you need to focus on the relationship and you need to think about which which uh, questions am I going to ask? Which questions aren't going to be offensive or inflammatory because I need buy in from this person again mm -hmm. because they're paying the bills. And, you know, we also want them to do right by their organization to improve things, but they're not going to do that. They're not going to take our advice seriously if we're not, you know, respect, making them feel respected and heard and understood and those kinds yeah. of things. So that's, that's the only thing I'd add. So, yeah. Sorry and, for interrupting. But, and this gets, yeah, it's okay. And this gets at the, you know, this gets to the heart of something that from a philosophical perspective becomes a problem is if you, the Socratic method is looking for ultimate, ultimate truth, right? And it's, it's, it's about digging into the background knowledge that people have and they, their assumptions um, and continuing to question each each proposition that people bring forward to ground some sort of truth, like what is justice. And, uh, and as we saw with the Socratic dialogue, it could potentially be endless. Uh, it could go on and on and on as people say, well, you know, uh, justice is this. Well, what do you mean by justice is to tell the truth? Well, what is to tell the truth? How is it to tell the truth, and, and uh, what is the truth, and then you could have you'd have to define the truth, and then you'd have to have a definition for that, and so forth. So there's from a from a modern philosophical perspective, we can look at uh, what Plato was doing and sort of see that there was tension there between the ideal, the ideal or the idea of a Socratic method, and the need at some point to stop the discussion. To sort of say, okay, well, we can agree for now, based on our sort of observations and our perspectives, that this is the truth of a reality that we're uh, in right now. But you could potentially, you know, theoretically, continue this conversation forever. So, of course, this wouldn't work in a in a boardroom, right? Let's talk about the uh, supposed or the potential strategy of Socrates. So um, let's give some context. Socrates had already established, uh, established himself as a great intellectual force in Greece, so his professorial speak may have been acceptable. But Thrasymachus enters this dialogue uh, angry from the start, and I think he clearly had a bone to pick with Socrates for a long time, and this was his chance. So uh, kind of getting into the meat of Socrates here, this is uh, my perspective. If Socrates truly wanted to embark on this intellectual journey with Thrasymachus to uncover the true nature of justice, I think it was clear from the start that Thrasymachus, who throws himself into the discussion like, and this is a quote uh, from the text, like a wild beast, uh, he wasn't willing to participate in good faith. 
And uh, knowing this, though, Socrates begins to probe Thrasymachus using the Socratic method. Um, and he's doing it like an investigator. So um, really, in my mind, uh, all he's doing is making this unstable critical theorist, sorry, Juan, feel belittled. Like, <laughs> so the likelihood of persuasion isn't high, and the likelihood of improving his relationship with Thrasymachus isn't high also. So uh, basically, there's no positive outcome here, unless, of course, Socrates was not trying to engage productively with Thrasymachus, but rather he was trying to influence members of his audience, and I think that's more likely. So now, if that was the case, uh, well, great. This is an excellent strategy. However, note that um, it is a strategy. From the beginning, Socrates maintains what might be a facade of openness and transparency, but his probing follows a clear logic throughout the Republic, arriving at a relatively clear track of, of what justice looks like in the society or in, in the city, the polis. Yeah. Now, I think, you know, from a, we have to look at this from a, both a modern philo philosophical perspective and as we think about classical metaphysics as Plato put them forward, right? So, and again, this is where I think something that your intuition is that Socrates is supposedly coming at this and saying, oh, this is open, fair dialogue. We're sort of just getting at the bottom truth of things through a sort of open conversation. But at the same time, you're, you're sensing that he's sort of being strategic. He's leading the conversation at a certain point. And as we know, eventually, Socrates will sort of like just go into this rant, right? Where it's no longer a conversation and he just posits and he tells you what justice and truth are. And he gives you this myth of the cave and he, and this famous, you know, super famous philosophical uh, uh, fable. And he has to posit justice, truth, good, intuitively, philosophically, without discussion, without reference to real things in the world, sort of not to not reference to the to the material world, but to some intuition of some otherworldly realm, which is why it makes it really hard for us to really define what Socrates is, what Plato through Socrates is getting at. So again, to me, from a modern philosophical perspective, in which post Darwin and post Newton, we look at reality as something that we can approach through measuring instruments, through propositions that are supposed to align with other propositions that are supposed to then be, uh, in a sense, point to something in reality that could uh, that is supposed to sort of conform to these propositions, but that could, in any moment, if our propositions see, don't seem to align to reality, we could have to shift them or shift our methods. Uh, whatever the case, our approach to reality is through method, and we have no sort of certain apodictic or like, you know, statement of sort, epidemic statement, which means sort of a statement that would just kind of like be truthful in itself, right? That we could point to it and say, oh, that's definitely the truth. Uh, this points to this contradiction, I think, from our perspective in what we're seeing done in Socrates, where it's about getting to the truth through propositions. But as we talked about earlier, you could always question a proposition, ask for a definition of a proposition. You could do so endlessly and endlessly and endlessly. And perhaps through more and more propositions and more and more observations, more and more perspectives, we can get closer and closer, a closer to the perspective on what the truth is, uh, a closer idea on what a, the truth of an object or a state of affairs is. 
but we can never sort of have a unmediated sort of access to that without propositions and language, uh, sort of a brute sense-based uh, notion of what the reality of state of affairs is. You could always go more fine-grained uh, through a different instrument uh, and so forth. So does the, the tension for me there is really interesting, the tension between getting to the truth for dialogue and then eventually having to stop the conversation and say, well, actually, you know, all these things that you guys are talking about, all these ways that you're trying to find propos uh, uh, justice in terms of propositions, we have to stop somewhere. And as a philosopher, I'm going to give you my intuition based on a sort of ideal hierarchy of forms of what the good and justice are, which is, you know, this is what makes Plato both really problematic and really, really interesting as well. Yeah, well, so there is the kind of analytic philosophers or scientists response to this, which might actually be in favor of a Platonic or Socratic approach to uncovering truth. Uh, this analogy we discussed earlier in the week uh, in theoretical physics, when we begin with a Newtonian understanding of physics, of how gravity works, down to Einstein, where our calculations become a little bit more accurate and we say okay einsteinian physics makes more sense than newtonian physics until you have niels bohr and quantum physics and then you kind of go down and down until we have better and better calculations understandings of how reality probably works so from a scientist view yes we are indeed probing real tangible things getting closer to an actual truth here because you know the math works out and you know you both you and i don't really buy into that perspective but i it's worth noting that there is that belief that right. there's tangible truth and and perhaps it can be you know the the other side of that is all of those uh, theories in physics they start with kind of arbitrary propositions thrown at a wall trying to you know just explain something and then after the fact they work out the math and see if it works and they run experiments yeah and yet, you're faced always. You're faced with a problem, which is, uh, from our, from a philosophical perspective, you know, let's say you you have some you've developed a set of theories and mathematical formulas that concord with a set of observations uh, through very finely uh, finely worked tools that allow you to you you know to see to see at a very small scale. And you're able to sort of say, okay, well, this is quantum mechanics. This is how things work at a quantum level. And we can sort of make these hypotheses that sort of, and propositions that work out in observation to a certain extent. And there's always the question, well, can you go deeper? You know, is there, is there, can you posit some sort of material kernel that would be the one upon which all um, sort of material things are based and through which they react, like this is the one thing you know. This is the one kernel that, that of material element that reacts mechanically to other things. And from everything, from that little kernel, everything else grows: atoms, and then organisms, and you know, cells and organisms, and so forth. You have to, if if you were willing to to make that move, and knowing that the universe changes, knowing that um, the universe is in constant change, and that tomorrow your propositions could be have to be reformed or rethought 
you would have to either make an ideal uh, sort of assumption that there's some kind of kernel that's always forever in space and time, always there, and it's the base element of material, and it can't be divided anymore. You can't go any smaller. Or you'd have to make sort of, and, and you know, you sort of like, uh, you flip into idealism uh, if you do that. You have to kind of, so from a modern philosophical perspective, some people would argue, you have to kind of be agnostic and let science work it out always. Because science through its methods will give us the closer fine-grade tune of a reality that's constantly changing about which we can never sort of give a definition that's static forever. Uh, so that's a, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a problem that gets us back to, to Plato and Socrates and this whole question of like, how, how can you grant, ground an absolute truth through an ever more developed dialogue or, or, uh, or a, a sort of statement about the essence of something. Yeah. Based on our second episode of Nietzsche, I'm just, you know, if he was in the room where someone proposed an overarching theory of everything, you know, encapsulated <laughs> in a one inch equation, he would, he would lose his shit. Well, and then on the other hand, he, you know, he tells us that at the base of everything is power, right? Biologically. So he also does that in his own way, but uh, we could, you know, I think we'll talk about that again too with Trisimachus. Yeah. I think for him, such an equation would only reveal someone's narcissism. It wouldn't have anything to do with truth. Yeah. Before we get into the meat of the uh, argument here between Socrates and Thrasymachus, um, I want to give my own personal working definition of strategic communication. For me, it's communicating with intent to influence others to modify their beliefs, attitudes, and or behaviors. So I know that's a fairly broad definition, but, um, you know, rhetoric is the art and study of persuasion, and that's the basis of which um, of uh, Aristotle's logos, pathos, and ethos, and, and sometimes mythos, which refers to storytelling. So the goal of strategic communication can be to persuade, and it may intersect with rhetoric in that way, but I argue that strategic communication is larger than rhetoric, uh, including to affect relationships, to work through and create solutions to challenges in interpersonal or group contexts, uh, and in a change management context to improve organizational output and competitiveness. So um, I, I think those are um, important things to note when we consider Socrates, because I don't think he's outwardly being rhetoric, although he might find some rhetorical ploys in there, even though he's so against rhetoric. But there's definitely a greater track of um, strategy in there. Mm -hmm. Let me uh, try to defend this definition a little bit. When I deal with clients, when I uh, enter negotiations and I give presentations, in these types of situations, often I'll spend a lot of time thinking about what I want the result to be and how I'm going to achieve it. And sometimes I'm doing this weeks before the event. So I'm asking questions like, who is my audience? Where are they from? What narrative will resonate with their experience? How am I going to keep them focused on shared interests so we can move forward? So uh, really, what am I going to say in which way so I leave this interaction with the result that I wanted or something equivalent to that? And so for me, this is strategic communication. Now, um, my feeling is that Socrates was either a very unskilled uh, strategic communicator with respect to Thrasymachus, <laughs> or he was a very skilled strategic communicator with respect to his audience. And if the latter is true, 
uh, Socrates' um, decimation, you might to use mo modern YouTube speak, of Thrasymachus's critical views of justice, <laughs> that would serve to embarrass Thrasymachus and shine a light on Socrates' intellectual superiority. So there's a reputational element here that um, maybe is playing out in, in a kind of a power dynamic between Socrates and Thrasymachus in this conversation. Yeah. In this video, Socrates decimates <laughs> Trasimachus. <laughs> um, well, you know, that's a... I don't know. Again, do, 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 am, am I being too cynical here? You know, I, I already hear someone saying, Jason, you're missing the point yeah. here. It doesn't matter if Socrates was being strategic. What matters is the principle of uncovering truth through a dialectical process. And, you know, okay, fair enough. Uh, the no, I think, I, think, I think you're not being... Cynical. I think you're intu intuiting something that is a contradiction in the Socratic method as it's presented by Plato, right? And this gets to another issue, which I think you, you sort of touched upon, uh, which is and getting away maybe from science and philosophy and these abstract ideas of how could you ground truth through propositions and so forth. Democra you know, in, in the society of, in the political dimension, there's a problem of how do you get all these people with different perspectives to agree on a way to organize a society when everybody has a different perspective on what it means to uh, to do the right thing or what you know what the link between the truth and rightness is the truth and what what does what the right thing to do is and Demo, you know Plato was very very much uh, skeptical of the idea of democracy right this cacophony of voices that could somehow uh, add up to to an ordered society, right? For him, so there's this tension there in the Socratic method. We're going to use dialogue. We're all going to talk. We're all going to give our perspectives, and somehow we're going to arrive at the truth. And yet at some point, Plato has to, uh, through Socrates, has to stop conversation. He says, well, actually, no, I'm going to give you through, because I'm a philosopher, and I reflect on these things, I'm going to give you my idea of what truth is, sort of intuitively out of my thinking. But so the Socratic method is this weird thing as it's presented in Plato. It's both dialogue supposedly to ground truth and it's Socrates over and over again as we see sort of like undermining people's attempt to define an absolute concept, some, you know, some abstract concept like justice in terms of propositions. Oh, justice is telling the truth. Oh, justice is doing this and that. Oh, justice means to be, you know, honorable. Well, what does it mean to be honorable and so forth and so forth and so forth so you know there's a there's a question there that for us is interesting in terms of communication and it's how in what context and in what institutions and what settings can communication really be sort of open-ended free non-strategic this is something i think we'll talk a lot about in our next episode uh, but sort of getting to that 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 point here i think that uh you're what you what you bring up as cynicism or, or as, you know, possible cynicism, I think is the expression of something that's at the heart of this text, which is that the Socratic method would have to go on forever. Um, and in a modern society, we have these institutions that sort of like put a momentary stop to this discussion, democratic open discussion, so that we can sort of like pass laws and so forth. But ideally, the discussion goes on forever. Right, we're always having to discuss what's the right way to organize society. What's the right way to, what laws are going to help us live uh, it together in peace and allow us to be free? But Plato 
again, he's not trying to, uh, the republic that he ends up describing for us is not one that's democratic, it's one in which it's ran by philosophers. Right. They right. give you an idea of what justice is. So this tension you're feeling is a tension at the heart of the text. Open discussion by Socrates, undermining of his, his continuous undermining of them, because at the end of the day, he's not interested in like reaching a consensus through discussion. Even though he says he is, he's really interested in giving you uh, uh, an apodictic, again, definition of, just, of justice and truth, one that comes out of his mind. Yeah, and, well, so m maybe there is rhetoric here. I'm listening to you speak, and I'm thinking, yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. There his, is. His, his hierarchy of, you know, the, the way that society ought to be run from a Socratic standpoint is you have philosophers at the top, and their opinion matters more than everyone else's. There's, there's an ethos there. There's an appeal to his own personal credibility as an intellectual force, and therefore... Mm -hmm you know, what he's saying has more weight. Yeah. So, well, and we could see Tresimachus then is, you know, is he the, the, the bad consciousness of, of Plato <laughs> telling him, telling him in a sense, like, yeah, you, you talk about, well, we'll get to, we'll get to what Tresimachus sort of the way he attacks. Well, Tresimachus comes in and basically tells Plato, well, you, I mean, Socrates, you're being, you'd say you're off, open to communication, but you have these strategies that you're always using. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so um, let's maybe um, get into the meat of the argument then. Uh, so I'll, I will say just quick, um, I think the, the principle of the Socratic method, you know, this idea of uncovering truth, it's, you know, in a vacuum distinct from strategic communication. I'm just saying that when we try to operationalize it in, in a genuine way, um, I don't know if, if strategy can be separated in a reliable way. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I even go, so I, I think people are naturally strategic, uh, particularly when something of self-importance is put on the line. I might even go mm -hmm. further than that, that being strategic can be a, a really good thing and and maybe even morally desirable in an inter interpersonal context. And again, that's that's probably more for <laughs> our next episode. <laughs> this is going to be a really... A Another question for our next episode, I think, yeah. because again, I would come at it from a perspective where the strategic communication has its limits, right? And and again, I would point to the tensions in the text that we're seeing, questions around democracy and what people presuppose when they're uh, discussing these things. But let's get to that. Let's get to that. Uh, let's get to that next episode and maybe dive into this whole discussion we've been talking about, right? Yeah. With with the, the Republic and what is it that they're talking about? Uh, how is it that, what it, who is Trisimachus and how does he come into the text and what does he do? Yeah, okay. Well, so it begins with, you have Socrates and his, I guess, his group of buddies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they're just walking around. They're, I think they're headed to the port or they're headed from the port. They decide to go to um, the house of Cephalus, who is an older man. <laughs> And um, and it's too early. And it starts with this conversation about respecting your elders and and how much uh, Cephalus respects the conversations of uh, or or having conversations with Socrates. And it moves towards this conversation about what um, what justice is. Mm -hmm. And 
Cephalus puts forth this premise that justice is speaking the truth and paying one's debts or giving to others what they are due. Socrates, you know, he agrees this is a fine sentiment, at least on the surface, but he begins to cross-examine and eventually reveals an obvious problem. He says, uh, if a sane man lends weapons to a friend and then asks for them back when he is out of his mind, the friend shouldn't return them and wouldn't be acting justly if he did. So if, um, if your friend is uh, a murderer and he's looking for his knife, and he's owed his knife, like you're supposed to give it back to him, but would it really be moral to to give it back to him because then he's probably going to murder someone? <laughs> right. Um, so anyway, Cephalus is old and he leaves, and then Polemarchus, who I think is his son... <laughs> he's like, I, I can't win this argument. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm out here." laughs> ...steps in and he attempts to defend his father by providing a modern, uh, a modified version of the original premise, and he argues that friends owe it to their friends to do good for them never harm anyway mm -hmm. so um the conversation continues and i'm just trying to set the context here thrasymachus is going to step in a minute here so um yeah you know socrates counters well then shouldn't one also give to his enemies what they're owed the group agrees and then they arrive at yet another modified premise that justice is a craft that gives benefits to one's friends and harms one's enemies and you know no. he's already he, he's already using this term craft, which I think is interesting. Cultivating your craft, which is something that is innate in you, you're born with a certain innate track to excel in a certain area, and that is going to determine your place in society. So, no. and that's kind of the basis of of Socrates' view of what a, the just society looks like. So he's already using this term craft, and he's going to develop on that more and more and more. Mm -hmm. And so that, that to me suggests he already knows where he's going with this conversation. It's not just a kind right. of an open yeah. questioning. That, right. That, he already has his assumptions that he's not letting his speakers know about Yeah. also, which is a problem. I think we're talking about open communication. Yeah. And sort of like, sort of like non-strategic. Correct. So, you know, it suggests that justice is a skill that can be learned and mastered much like cooking, medicine, sailing, woodworking, and so on. Anyway, so no one really seems to challenge him on this point. And um, Socrates reasons that based on this premise, justice seems to be useful only in matters of safekeeping the possessions or money of friends. This is based on uh, Polemarchus's view. So this is because justice doesn't make a cook a better cook or a doctor a better doctor and so on. Rather, it is the mastery of those crafts that produce better cuisine or medicine not justice. Uh, yet, assuming that justice is a craft, then a master of justice must also be highly capable of performing the opposite of safekeeping the possession of money or friends. So that's stealing from, from one's enemies. So Socrates concludes that if we accept Cephalus or um, Polemarchus's definition of justice, then um, justice is the craft of engaging in theft to benefit friends and, and harm enemies. And of course, Polemarchus is aghast at this realization and agrees with the premise. <laughs> and he's like, oh, this is completely flawed. You're right, Socrates. So this is just this Socratic method playing out how mm -hmm. he's asking questions and revealing contradictions in other people's arguments. Anyway, um, Thrasymachus kind of jumps in at this point and he's just completely pissed. And he's, he's like, <laughs> Socrates, you're scheming, you're... Uh, 
not arguing in good faith. You're a bad player, and uh, I'm going to yeah. wreck you right now. Right. And what's great about, you know, Trisimachus in this text is the way he sort of just, there's this very civil conversation going on, and everyone's sort of deferring to Socrates. And all of a sudden you get to to uh, Trisimachus, and he just sort of like rips into the text with all this fury and anger and with all these name calling and uh it's sort of like it's an interesting moment in the text uh from the perspective of what we you know the socratic method and the ideal of sort of open communication based on on sort of like maybe this is this is sort of us as from our perspective like overlaying our ideas on the text but we we think of the socratic method of as this sort of like open communication where people come in and they just sort of like through dialogue they're going to arrive at the truth. But Trasimachus is already undermining this whole idea, right? He comes in and he says, um, he tells Socrates, well, you're always, you know, you're basically using these these rhetoric, uh, rhetorical forms of argument. You're always questioning things, but you're never telling us what you really think. So he's already sort of bringing up this question. like, well, you never give us a definition um, and so forth. And somehow, well, I mean, let's go through this argument a little bit, right? Somehow Socrates gets him strategically, I would say, you're right, to like offer his definition rather than him, Socrates, ever putting his cards on the table yet. And he tells him, well, well why don't you tell us what justice is? Because then we can all get to the definition faster. I need to learn because I'm ignorant. And he, again, he assumes he's ignorant, even though a few chapters on, he's going to be giving everybody this sort of like perfect myth of what justice is, right? So he's lying. <laughs> he's also Plato Socrates' bald face lying to his, to his uh, discussants, right? Yeah. So, but let's get to the argument. So Trasimachus tells, you know, when he's asked, what justice is, he says, justice is what is good for the stronger. That's his sort of first argument for that, for who the strongest person is. And he says that each city, each polis, it's the same thing. You see the same thing. What is good for the ruling authority, you know, that's what justice is defined as, what is good for the stronger. So we're almost getting here a proto-Nietzschean definition of terms like the good and justice. It's it's what people say good and justice is. It's based on power games. Uh, so interesting also that we sort of begin, maybe see maybe the first sort of like proto postmodern argument about uh, ideas like truth and justice. Goes to show that the Greeks truly did think of everything. Mm, right, maybe, but they weren't, but here it's not theorized, right? Trisimachus doesn't theorize sort of like, well, I'm going to tell you why. He just sort of like says this because that's his observation. Yeah, he, he never right. he never really gets to yeah. a, a full view of, of, of how power plays out no. in, in society. Right. Which is why Plato will just use the same tactic he's used on his other interlocutors to sort of undermine them and show them that their definitions, which are based on these sort of absolutes, are always can be questioned if you're just trying to define things propositionally in terms of propositions, you can always sort of question uh, one of the terms in the propositions and ask for a definition. So Plato says, for instance, with this, with, in reaction to this, uh, this, this idea that justice is good for the stronger, what's, what's good for the 
put the strongest. He says, if rulers make mistakes, you know, in ruling, that benefit the weak, then isn't this a contradiction in terms? And Trismegistus returns and replies by saying, "Well, you you you're, you're you're taking my words, you're taking my words out of context. I I would never say that a ruler makes a mistake, in the precise sense of the term. A ruler, someone who's good at the art or craft of ruling, would always do what's good for the ruler and would never make a mistake in terms of the ruling. And so now we get to the question of what a skill is, a craft is, right? We go back to this idea of the craft, and Plato goes." He says, well, if a skill is defined by what is, isn't a skill defined by what is good for its object? Doesn't, uh, doesn't a shepherd do what's good for the sheep? Doesn't a sculptor do what's good for the, the sculpture and so forth? And so for how, how could a ruler do what's good for the ruler? Wouldn't the ruler do what's good for the ruled? Again, he's using, um, he's questioning Trismicus' own terms. And Trismicus replies, well, justice is what, is good for the stronger, uh, whereas injustice is what is good for oneself. And so he's starting to fall into these, he's trying to find more, more, and that sort of like sounds really strange, but it's because he's trying to find these sort of definitions that, uh, and get around Plato's argument. But then just, you know, Plato comes back and he says, well, you know, if, does the just man try to outdo the, ju the other just man, or does he only try to undo those who are unjust. Uh, and thus the unjust person seek to undo both the just and the outjust. Uh, and Plato comes, Plato says, I'm sorry, Socrates says, so the just is the person who is good at, at their skill and only seeks to outdo those that are ignorant at the skills, whereas the unjust person, like the ignorant person, tries to outdo both the ignorant and the wise. Uh, and so you see how he starts wrapping him up in contradictions and so forth. And at the end of the day, though, we could just we, we could keep going in, in sort of dialogue, which is almost to an end. But what Socrates is doing with uh, with Thrasymachus is the same thing he's done to his other interlocutors, which he's questioned their basic terms and offered, asked them to to give a definition of one of those terms in the proposition, and then found contradictions, uh, obvious contradictions in these in these arguments. Yeah. And I'm I'm just thinking about going through this this um, whole approach here with with the client from before. How it, mm -hmm. if the client were for Simicus, how horrible the conversation would go, how bad it would be for <laughs> right. for the company. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, you know, when we first read this together, thought it was hilarious, uh, but now, uh, yeah. but reading it again. Uh, I still think it's hilarious, but I also think it's um, I I feel kind of bad for Thrasymachus because it's it's more clear to me that that Socrates is just you know poking little holes here here and here and not giving Thrasymachus a chance to really plant his feet and um, think about what he's saying and and give kind of the the more Nietzschean kind of full picture of, of what he's trying to say here. And again, Trisimachus is really interesting because he, he helps us, looking at it from our perspective, he comes up with an argument that basically says justice is power, though it's not really articulated, sort of theoretically or philosophically. Um, and in a sense, you know, your intuition that there's a, there are power games going on here, that there's a strategy being put into motion by, by Socrates, uh, gets at a contradiction, I think, or really a tension in this text. On the one hand, 
Socrates presents himself as sort of this ignorant man who's just looking out for for knowledge. He's just interested in, in arriving at knowledge through discussion. He wants to learn. But he's really, he understands sort of intuitively or philosophically that there's no way that any of his um, discussants, the people he's talking to, can define any term, an abstract term like justice or truth, through a set of statements. There's always another, you'd always have to offer another definition and another definition and another definition. And he's already sort of realized this as a philosopher, or at least, he, you know, he sort of feels compelled, Plato through Socrates, to, to, uh, to give it a definition of justice sort of intu- intuitively based on a, a sort of abs- abstract or maybe ideal other, otherworldly realm of, uh, of forms. Which, again, we're not. I don't. We don't want to get too much in the weeds of what he's what he's doing. But at some point, Socrates is already. He's already has a strategy, which is I'm going to show people that there's no way to define these things, unless we can think about them uh, in terms of this ideal notion of justice, good, truth, that we could we could sort of like make a set of statements that intertwine into a whole that makes sense, but only if we posit sort of this ideal realm of, of never changing forms, because reality itself, material reality, the one we're faced with, uh, and the sort of tools that we have for approaching this reality, which are statements and perspectives, observations, um, can always be undermined through other, through other perspectives, through other observations. And yet Trisimachus comes in here and he's almost like a false consciousness, of the, like a bad consciousness in the text. Where he's telling, he's already telling Socrates. You know, he feels that Socrates is sort of like there's something he's hiding something, right? Yeah. And that, in some sense, he comes with that argument. Well, you're just playing, you're just playing strategic games with us. And there, I'm gonna, and therefore, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you, justice is just, yeah, you know, justice is because he's got the cynical perspective. But Socrates is going to be able to neutralize that by showing that this is just another definition that he can sort of neutralize. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder how these two competing notions of truth, so with Socrates, it's more, um, it's pretty absolute, it's, it's more objective and concrete, and from a um, Thrasymachus perspective, it's more um, relative to whoever is in charge. And I'm curious yeah. how these two competing notions of truth might actually affect someone's communicative approach, you know, entering a conversation. So if if you're of the Socratic type and you think there is some kind of objective truth, you are going to argue in such a way that uh, might be more positional. So you know, I have a position. I um, you know, either I think we can discover what is really truth through this conversation, or or I already know what the truth is, and I'm going to persuade you of that. And uh, you know, it lends itself to this kind of digging in effect that makes it very hard to move forward especially in a negotiation context we're going to talk about getting to yes and never split the difference two of my favorite kind of uh, uh, negotiation approaches that that look at the um they're they're actually competing on on these two like on on either end of the spectrum and how you should approach a conversation like this um the positional framework tends to not result in very favorable outcomes for anyone because you don't no one comes away with a um, 
feeling, uh, you know, everyone feels slighted at the end of the conversation. But if you're Thrasymachus and you think that power uh, or that truth is more relative to power and there really isn't this kind of objective thing that is justice, well then uh, it might actually lend itself to uh, going into conversations a lot more open-minded and, uh, you know, trying to, and it lends itself to, to more strategy also because maybe you want to try to be the dominant actor in this interaction and come up with something at the end that, um, you know, is going to become the, the dominant knowledge that is, um, impacting people's behaviors and, and thoughts and things like that. But, but if you, if you're not so beholden to this objective view of justice, then maybe you can enter a conversation and be a little bit more open and figuring out, okay, where do we want to take this conversation? Well, and I, and the, and you bring up something that I, I think is a ongoing argument that especially we'll get a touch upon in our next episode, but it's this question of um, strategy as a way to getting to a mutual sort of arrangement. Um, and the notion that the Socratic method is something beyond strategy where you could arrive as sort of a, at a common perspective, right? And I think, and it, once again, because of the way sort of Plato through Socrates resolves the tension between, between an ever-going conversation about truth and the need to stop that conversation, we are, we're faced by this sort of, in this sort of contradiction that even plays itself out for us, perhaps, uh, politically in modern day, where we have this question of, well, I think we, you know, me and you would argue about the, the limits of, of rhetoric and strategic communication, but we could probably agree that most of the time people are being strategic when they're communicating. They have an interest in communicating with others and they are trying to achieve some sort of result. Nonetheless, in our sort of democratic society, right, there's this presupposition that people would come into conversation into the public sphere or into the political sphere and that they would have open conversation. They would tell, they would have this sort of conversation in which perspectives are shared and which people are willing to change their perspective based on reasons that are offered to them, right? Not on strategies that change their mind, uh, not in, not on based on rhetoric, and this is a constitutive problem that goes back to the polis, to questions of the difference between rhetoric and communicate and open communication. Not on rhetoric and sort of some some appeal to passion, but an appeal to reason, an appeal to sort of, hey, this is how things are from my perspective. Have you thought about that? And oh, I didn't think about that perspective. Let me. I'm going to shift my perspective, not based on some rhetorical method that you used, but based on the reason that you gave me. So the appeals to reason as, a, as opposed to the appeals to rhetoric. Uh, well, we but, see but an appeal to reason, though, can still be a strategy. It can be a very effective strategy depending on your audience, right? If, if you're a scientist and you're speaking to a group of scientists, well, then the best way for you to get the message across is to use good reason and statistics and and uh, reporting the results of your experiments and and using that kind of language to get the point across, but that's a that's a strategy. 
But isn't that the ideal as well in a democratic society that you are coming in and using reasons and not strategies to, uh, and that you're willing to listen to other reasons as well, that you're willing to be susceptible to changing your mind based on other reasons, not through strategy, but for reason. I think that is what the democratic approach to solving problems is, uh, ideally, but in practice, <laughs> this is getting into to that thing we were trying to say for next week. But, um, <laughs> you know, in, in practice, we are all strategic, I think. And some of us are more skilled at being strategic than others. But, you know, it might be that if your audience, even in a democratic context, you know, you could be a scientist, but your audience is is not comprised of scientists and you are trying to, you know, popularize the idea that, um, you know, I'm not going to be able to think of a, good, of a good scientific, but maybe you need funding for your experiments. So you're going to appeal to the public, but you can't use scientific speak to get their buy-in. So you're going to have to use some strategy to communicate with them in such a way that is going to compel them to change their beliefs and, and behaviors. So, so there can be support for what you're trying to accomplish here. And that is very much a strategy that that plays out all the time in a in a democratic framework. Well, again, and I think this is where this is where it's really important to be to define the 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 context of any of any communicative exchange, right? Um, so, among let's say we're talking about scientist to scientist, you you know you are you are your proposition, Trismegistus, is that. Uh, scientists will always use a strategy of some sort to get other scientists to assume their perspective, right? Socrates might say, well, or my Socrates would say, well, that's, that's, uh, my Socrates unfiltered by Plato, <laughs> you know, my ideal notion of the Socratic method being put into practice would say, well, no, the scientist would show up and he would present a set of experiments that through a set of tools have been able to register some sort of state of affairs in real in the real world, um, some sort of inscriptions and so forth. And then through a sort of, through a sort of model of, of concepts is able then to that interlink and that connect to these observations in a, in a, in a coherent way, he's able to make an argument about what reality is. And that alone, this chain of this chain of propositions that link up uh, to observations that are backed up by tools and observational techniques and methods that are supposed to be sort of uh, not totally or at least mostly influenced by the scientists' uh, perspective, but are supposed to be somewhat objective. That these alone. Will, will sway other scientists to say, ah, that's, that's true. That's something that really, that's a state of affairs that we can sort of sign up to and say, yes, that's, that gets close to the truth. So is that a strategy or is that, or is that a mobilization, of, simply a mobilization of reasons? And of course we could start, I think we could do a counter-Socratic counter -Socratic questioning and say, well, how do you present it? And uh, what do you choose to present? and uh, how do you choose to frame it and so forth but this tension between between rhetoric 
and or maybe strategy and open communication i think is an interesting one to keep exploring in terms of the context of of communication right so yeah we presuppose the scientists going into a room that the other scientists going to be presenting to us uh something based on a set of methods that we all agree are not based on a strategy but are based on a sort of like approach to reality that would be based on uh reason to a certain extent method yeah uh, well so so my, my so intuition is that we can probably reduce re uh, rhetoric and um strategy to some extent through by by establishing certain normative procedures in different contexts so like in in court or going back to our scientist example there's some there's peer review no. so you submit a paper and you have scientists and researchers evaluate your work and provide their comment and then you come up with something that is hopefully uh free from your personal biases and and perceptions and we we know that doesn't always happen though and it, you know it's right. worth noting that in spite of any rigorous set of procedures um the participants are still human beings with their own personal interests in their own needs and wants and, and feelings and their own struggles with their relationships and and um, you know and <laughs> right. and their you know um not very uh participatory parents when they were younger and resulting in all sorts <laughs> of psychological issues growing up and like yeah. all these things are playing out and that is uh all happening at the same time that we mm -hmm. are trying to comply with certain procedures and so it, it's it's very hard for those kinds of you know for our personal baggage should not come out in in any yeah. given uh interpersonal exchange and so we can again you know we can try to limit those things through rigorous procedure but um those things are still happening and uh we we want our egos to be okay through this whole exchange so we use strategy to do that we think about what we're going to say we try to impact our our peers in a certain way you know we want them to perceive us a certain way and so those are all things that play into how we are being strategic with our communication every single day well you know i think we've reached a, an interesting point in a conversation where the person who defines themselves as a critical theorist me is defending or seems to be rhetorically <laughs> or maybe not rhetorically socratically trying to propose uh a limit to rhetorical speech <laughs> i in terms of in the institutional context right despite acknowledging that empiric you know in empiric in real society empirically people are always being strategic and may even always act strategically even in contexts where supposedly we don't act strategically where people presuppose that people are going to go in and not act strategically whether that's the public sphere of swaying people about what's the best way to organize society and what are the best laws for ensuring freedom and so forth or whether it's a scientific sphere where you're trying to propose that a state of that uh this where you're trying to present a state of affairs uh where you're trying to argue that reality is a certain way uh i'm the one sort of defending this notion that you that at the end of the day there are uh, some presuppositions about that people 
have when they enter into situations where they would have to appeal to reason. They expect an appeal to reason rather than a sort of rhetorical driving them to a perspective. Uh, and, and you're the one sort of, uh, offering a more contextualist and, uh, model that we could even say, uh, where rhetoric, uh, is always there. Eve is always there. Uh, and we can't sort of like even in every, in every context, you know? So, so let me just add there. So mm -hmm. if we accept that this is the way things play out in reality, because we're all human beings and we all have these things, we all have baggage. So we're all being strategic to, to some extent. So then there's some, at some, at the level of the substrate, there is strategy. And then you can cultivate that in a Socratic sense, you can cultivate your, your, how skillful you are with your communication. So you can be a better strategic communicator. Um, <clears throat> and really good strategic communicators when they're in any kind of interpersonal interaction, they want to use things like empathy and validation and mirroring to um, affect the other, to make them feel heard and listened to and, and to, to create a, a more positive, uh, constructive, to make a, a more positive and, constru and constructive dialogue happen. So um, that is very much a strategy, but it's also good for the relationship and everyone feels better at the end of the day. It actually uh, arguably brings people closer together. So this is where you could potentially yeah. argue that having kind of a more, as you put it, contextualist view of, of, of communication in a democratic uh, context um, can actually result in, in moral outcomes. So uh, maybe that's a, the, a preamble for, for the mm. next conversation. But. Yeah, I think, I think we need to, you know, the question of institutional context, right? So I think your institutional context where you apply communications is a, is the firm in general or an organization and you come in and you have to sort of use strategies to get people to sort of whether adopt new practices, new cultures, new take whatever it is. Right. And, and yet we have to raise the question, I think of whether that, and, and the, in the context of the market that might make sense where firms are about sustaining themselves and in, in a way also in expanding, but in the context perhaps of democratic institutions where people are of course using rhetoric every day and using strategies every day, nonetheless, the ideal that's presupposed is one in which uh, as citizens, we are all sort of have our perspectives, our beliefs, our values, and yet we're willing to use communication and dialogue to sort of reach, to sort of decenter our perspectives, uh, to use a Habermasian term, uh, in order to sort of reframe based on the reasons that we are willing to accept our own uh, beliefs, values, and so forth. Uh, so there's a, the question there I think remains open. What are, are there limits to, to rhetoric? You know, you said something I think key. Rhetoric can help people achieve more moral ends. And from a Habermasian perspective, of course, this would be, this would be, uh, this is something he would criticize heavily, saying, for example, well, no, at the end of the day, it's only, even if people are, in real life, using rhetoric most of the time, 
some institutional contexts, uh, in some institutional and communicative contexts, we are presupposing that people are actually open to reason and using only reason primarily as the way to achieve some new arrangement or new perspective. Uh, and it's only in this way that you can really, uh, it's against this sort of ideal that you're measuring the quality of the communication itself. You're measuring the quality of the objectives attained as well. Uh, well, I think we'll, that's something to discuss more carefully next time, but I, clearly a tension here between uh, the idea of the relation to, to the political, to morality and rhetoric and, and some ideal, again, very problematic, but ideal notion of sort of an open Socratic communication, right? Yeah. All right. Well, I think that might be a good place to wrap up. Um, yeah, I think it, I think it's because you know we did well with our coffee. Oh man, Socrates! It's yeah, it's a shame I didn't have more coffee, but yeah, I think it turned out okay. <laughs> so so where are we left here? Thrasymachus leaves the the argument um, or leaves leaves this um, exchange not feeling uh, very good about himself, and you know. Uh, funny enough, what, <laughs> right. what we really found uh, hilarious about this is by the end, Thrasymachus is, has conceded everything to Socrates and is essentially licking his shoes. He's just, <laughs> he's like completely into it. He's like, right. oh yes, Socrates, like what you say makes the, makes perfect sense. Uh, you know, of course, justice isn't about power and, and kings and authority and um, yeah. it's, it's all about the craft. And uh, right. and the good, yeah. which is, I'm never going to be able to. Um, that is the the critical theorist in me not being able to accept um, any any position where where there's such a thing as a good in this kind of me metaphysical unattainable place that can only be understood through its reflections in in our mm. environment. Mm. Well, and and you know. It's we laughed a lot about this because 20, 30 pages pass or something. Thrasymachus seems to have just have sh shut up or something. And then all of a sudden, Thrasymachus just, he's like, you're right, Plato. You know, I mean, you're right, Socrates, randomly in the conversation, right? And we were like, who is this meek Thrasymachus that just came out of nowhere? And so, again, Plato is not interested in democracy. <laughs> he is not trying to propose some model of democratic uh you know s democratic method of achieving consensus he is presenting socrates as this sort of like ignorant or socrates as this sort of noble uh philosopher who's always searching for truth and is able to undermine all these sort of naive understandings of truth but why are they naive because they fail to understand that there's this otherworldly ideal realm of the good through which we have to measure what good is. And there's no other way, there's no way to do it based on discussion and propositions and sort of, uh, and yet from our perspective, I think this is what you were saying, in a, I would call it in a modern, our modern situation and context, we, it's very difficult for someone to show, you know, show up to a, to let's say Congress and say, this is what's good. And for everybody to sort of say, you know, nod their heads and say, you're right, you know, that's what we're going to do. Because in a society as complex and, and in some ways full of different individuals that have different perspectives of ours, the good can only worked out, be worked out in a sense 
procedurally, not uh, not in terms of some absolute notion of the good. So this is a tension here that we already see in this text and that we, I think you brought up uh, uh, for our present moment, right? The, the idea of how you can attain some notion of the good in a platonic sense. Yeah. And then, you know, getting back to strategy, is it good to enter a conversation with a perception that there is a correct answer or that maybe mm-hmm. there is no correct answer and you're going to work something out with your partner that is either best for you or it'll end up not in your favor or maybe you can find something that is based on shared interests. Yeah. All those things require yeah. um, strategy or bad strategy if it, if it doesn't work out for you. Or do they require, and this maybe this is the question for next episode, do they require an, a sort of attitude? So do they require an attitude that I'm going into this conversation and I'm not acting strategically, I'm acting based on my reasons and I'm willing to assume that my reasons might be faulty and to listen to other reasons? Or is that is that ideal measuring, is measuring communication against that ideal uh, just to sort of, just a sort of like clandestine platonic <laughs> assumption. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, on to Habermas next week and then excited to kind of go a little bit more in depth into different strategies that I use every day uh, with um, through my work and, and even in my relationships, even in my conversations <laughs> with you on, I use these strategies. <laughs> You're using your strategy. You're strategizing with me all the time. Yeah, and I think you, all right, I think good to know, Tsimikas. I I think that you would. Uh, oh, I'm losing my headphones here. Hold on. Um, yeah, I think you would not like dealing with me if I didn't use these strategies. So anyway, we're we're going to um, talk <laughs> about that. And yeah, I would also posit that you use that you want to use strategies on me as well. I'm totally Socratic with you always. <laughs> If you're totally Socratic, the then you are... Which is why we're on the phone for three hours at a time. <laughs> you you are. I mean, yeah, we do tend to take a Socratic approach to things. But, you know, my view is that the Socratic approach uh, smuggles strategy into it. Hmm. To be continued. Sounds good. All right. Uh, have some more coffee. And uh, maybe next time we'll have some uh, some uzo to uh, for to honor <laughs> honor the ancient Greeks here. That that'll take the conversation in interesting ways. But <laughs> have a good have a good morning, Jason. Are you too? Do you enjoy what you're hearing on Panoptic Pod? Is the application of philosophy, media theory, and communications theory to everyday practical contexts something that you find interesting or useful? If so, please consider supporting our podcast through Patreon at patreon.com slash panopticpod. You can also access our Patreon through our website, panopticpod.com. There you can also drop us a line or a comment. Jason and I are always looking for ways to improve this podcast. Your support and comments will help us in that endeavor.